0: Good morning, welcome you guys all right yeah twelve of you awesome uh my name's Josh uh, one of your pastors here it's It's a joy to be here um It's been a little while so i've got and I've got all kinds of uh really things that I want you to to hear and I want things uh, i got a lot for you to kind of feel i've you know you, you get up here after not being here for a while and you know First of all, like my life has completely changed since I was here last. I got uh, more children, um, literally. So things are things are good in my home. They're they're kind of wild. I got a, a six week old daughter, lots of girls in my house um, and, and it's it's good. And then and then you kind of walk into uh, really a series by someone else. Uh, and Pastor Rich has been leading us through Philippians. And so I've got kind of all kinds of just you know, different ways that I see the book and, and different pieces that I want you to get and, and kind of like want you to know that even though, you know, haven't been up here for a while, still care about you guys, still love you, want you to uh, get the gospel and have your lives be moved and changed. So there's, there's about 600 things I want to do today. And um, it's hard because I actually have a passage that I uh, need to preach from too. So I'm, I'm just... Uh yeah, so there's a lot that's going on. I do want to take, I don't know, four or five minutes up front and kind of just share uh, really where uh, I believe that God has kind of been moving in our church and, and in my life, really the last year, I guess. Uh, and we'll kind of take that as a mini sermon and then we'll uh, pray and move on to the actual text for today. But uh, kind of just looking back uh, this past year where we've been uh, as a church. Right. So uh, it's almost July Tuesday. It'll be July. And uh, basically uh, almost a year previous, uh, we've met, we've had a massive transition uh, in leadership here. Um, about uh the middle of August I or the end of August I don't know sometime in August I get a call from our senior lead elder who tells me that we are uh, uh that the decisions been made between Andy and the elders that we're going to transition uh, to a different lead pastor and you know instantly that kind of that kind of rocks my world I mean there's there's relationship there there's uh you know job setting there's uh, the church there's leadership and and so I'm kind of just wrestling with the Lord at this point going like God what are you what are you doing here at Northwest Hills what's what's kind of your play here and and i've got all kinds of questions in this and then you know we move on a couple more months and uh one of my dear friends and uh, youth pastor here Randall clearly gets called to leave Northwest Hills and to plant a church in North Albany which he's about uh getting close to doing that and so that again is a big change uh, for our church it's it's a big change for me personally i spend a lot of time with the guy he's here uh full time and when he's not biking he's actually in the office so i spend some time with him and so he'll be gone so that's you know that's different, and that, that brings on a whole new conversation of, of restructuring youth ministry, and, and that's in the process of going on, and, and I, I will say this, uh, there's some awesome new interns who are going to be uh, taking over some of the youth stuff. I spent an entire day with uh, one of them on Friday, and man, this guy loves the Lord, so I am super pumped about them. Uh, that'll be good. Uh, love, Randall. and it just It's just a big change, and so beyond that, we've got uh, Paul who's been out for a couple months, and Austin's been here. Austin's been doing a fantastic job. Um, yeah, yeah. Austin has been doing a good job. Tom is now uh, out on sabbatical. So, I mean, really kind of uh, just Kurt and I hanging out in the office uh, learning magic tricks. I mean, he's, he's taught me, a, he's honestly taught me uh, how to fold a napkin into a rose, which has been convenient. Um <laughs> And then we brought in Pastor Rich and, uh, you know, about two months ago, he's here uh, about full time. I mean, three quarter time, but full time and uh, just really, really enjoying him as a man. I I love that guy. Um, he's really um, 40 years my senior and, and almost almost like a grandfather figure to me, but just pouring into me. And I love his wisdom. I love his knowledge. He's spending tons of time just uh, intentionally each week. We got a time and a couple hours. We're just you know, hashing life out. And I've got, you know, a hundred questions. This is kind of my, my first full-time pastorate here. So I'm, I'm wondering like, okay, is this normal here? Like, is this how things ought to go? And and he's saying yes on some things and no way on other things. And, you know, I'm just, I, I just really have been uh, blessed because of his presence. And, and yeah, we're drastically different, right? Like he preaches way differently than I do. I I'm sorry, you're not going to get notes like you're not going to get six points alliterated, starting with the letter D, namely because it would take me four hours just to come up with six words that start with D that have anything to do with the text. So that's not on him or me. I just that's not where I'm at. I can't do that. So, um, yeah, I've just really been uh, through a season of just a lot of, you know, change. And so I've been really just wrestling through the Lord like, God, what, what, what are you doing here? You know, what's. What do, you, what do you want me to do? Like, do you want me to do anything? Do you what's you know, what's going on? And and there's been a, a passage that I've just man for the life of me held on to uh, this whole last year. It's from Isaiah 64. Um, I preached on it here about, uh, I, don't know, I think, two years ago. And I preached actually in a church in Eugene a couple months ago on this passage, because it's one that I believe that God has been working uh, through our church and through my life. And really, it says this. This is no I has seen. No ear has heard of the God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And that's really just been kind of my prayer the last year is, is God, I want to a know you and I want to wait for you. I want to engage. Like, certainly I'm not going to just sit back and watch, right? I'm going to engage. I'm going to participate. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. And God, I, I need you to work because that's how you operate. I'm not the one doing the work here. You're the one doing the work. Uh, We got to get that priority in the right order. And so my plea for us, uh, really probably let's be honest for the next year while we don't have a senior pastor. Um, I don't know, maybe before that, who knows, but probably another year would be that our posture would be one where we're willing to say, okay, we are as a people, we're going to engage. We're going to be known. We're going to participate. We're going to be in community, but Lord, we are going to plea for you to work for us because God, you are the one who works. It's not me. And and if you have a disposition like mine, I want to put my hand to the plow and I want to make something happen. But the Bible doesn't say God works for those who help themselves. He says he works for those who can't help themselves. And we're all pretty helpless here. So I, I hope that our posture would be the same. I said this a little bit. I, I hope that we're not people who are just uh, watching. And I hope it's simply not a time where we're just kind of sitting back going, like, I'm, I'm not really going to do much. I'm just going to wait and see. You know, that's, that's a lame posture. There's far better places to be if all you want to do is watch. Go to the movies, right? They're far more entertaining. This isn't the movies. This is not what church is about. Church is about engaging, participating, and pleading for the Lord. Lord, we need you to work here. We know that you are. So we want, we, we want to participate in that. So that's just kind of where I've been the last year. I think that's where our church is. We're kind of in a period where we're asking and waiting, God, would you work for Northwest Hills? And, and I believe he has been. I believe he's been working on us uh, as a leadership team. I think he's been working on tons of us individually. I've seen marriages healed. I've seen lives get saved. I think God's doing awesome things here. So we praise his name for that. Amen. So that's sermon number one. Um, We'll pray and actually get into uh, Philippians. So let me pray, and then let's open up our Bibles. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, um, we are a people who are in desperate need of you. God, we, we can live life, and most things in life seem very contingent upon our work and our effort. Lord, but church is very different. God, in, in this economy, you're the one who works. Lord, clearly you've called us to do a lot of things, but Lord, we know that you are the one who sustains, who provides, who leads, who moves. And God, we want to be a people who humbly seek your face during this time. Lord, let it be not about us. Let us lay down our pride and our preferences. And let it be about you and your will and your word. You are a generous, generous God. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So. Um, wanna, uh, open up to Philippians. So we're gonna, we're, this is what we're gonna do today. We, we've got, uh, verses 9 through 11 that I'm gonna kinda tackle, but really in order to get to that, I'm gonna do a whole lot more work just looking at the big framework of what's going on, uh, in Philippians, because you, you can't just do 9, 10, and 11 without really seeing it. Uh, and it really is, it's a weighty section. Uh, last week, Rich was talking to us about how theologically, um, you got kenosis here, you got Jesus, and you got kind of this, this duality or, or really two natures, two complete natures. You got a God and a man in one person. And we, we're asking a lot of questions like, how does that work? I mean, how do you literally take a full God and a full man and unite them? And, and really we can have that conversation, but for this piece, like, we're, we're gonna hold off on that one and we're gonna look at what Paul's big point is. Namely, that we are to be like Christ and being like Christ here. We're looking at um, putting others above ourselves, which culturally doesn't make sense. I mean, this is this is one of the most countercultural messages that that we will ever encounter, that your life is best lived when you lay it down for others. It's not about you, but everything in culture screams it's about you. So today we're going to try to kind of uh, look at what the gospel says your life is really about and what brings real joy and real fulfillment, and that is being like Christ. So uh, we're going to read all 1 through 11 and kind of just look at the big picture of what Paul's doing uh, through the church uh, in Philippi. So let's go chapter 2, verse 1. I'm reading out of ESV if you're on your smartphone. So, so i got to build some context around uh, this main point that Paul's been building on. And, and in order to do that, we're going we're gonna to start with Paul. We're going to look at kind of his transformation. We're going to look at his journey in order to plant this church in Philippi. And then we're going to see what his message is. So, so in starting with Paul, right? We, gotta, we have to know Paul. He's the author of this. He's writing a letter to this church. And, and Paul at one point was a religious elitist. Right. He was of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. He had some clout. He was well known amongst the the religious circle. So he was a guy who was respected, well known, had position, had prestige, had authority and hated Jesus. Right. Not not a not a guy who's, you know, just writing letters saying, oh, Jesus isn't Messiah. I mean, aggressively pursuing the destruction of the early church to where he's literally going house to house, pulling out mom, pulling out dad, putting them in prison because they're saying that Jesus is Messiah. On his pursuit of destruction of the church, Jesus blows them up and says, no, son, I am Messiah, and we see just this massive 180 from, from high prestige, power, position to eventually killed for the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, just could not be different people. Couldn't be a different story. Paul's, Paul's life is so dramatically changed. So, so as he starts kind of his uh, I would say Christian life, kind of his post Saul life, his new Paul life. He, he makes his way up to Antioch and he, he kind of goes through a period of time where we don't really know what's going on with him. He spends some time uh, with the church. He's meeting some of the disciples there and they're spending time together. And, um, we don't know what happens for a number of years. And eventually uh, the church decides to make good on Jesus's command to go make disciples. And they say, okay, let's, let's send a couple of missionaries out. Who are we going to send? Well, we've got Paul and we've got this other guy here, Barnabas. They look like a couple of good candidates. So they send them out. On mission. So, this is Paul's kind of first missionary journey. He hops on a boat, goes west on the Mediterranean, goes to the island of Cyprus. At this point, Luke is with them. So, you got the three of them, probably other people with him as well, and starts preaching the gospel on the island of Cyprus. Uh, some people get saved, probably plant a church there, uh, get back on a boat, head north up to the mainland, go to a couple of cities up there. And what we see here is instantly Paul is going to the different synagogues. He's going to the Jewish people first, and he's got to have a context in which to preach the gospel. So he goes into a synagogue. These people know the Old Testament. They know uh, God is uh, author, sustainer of life. They know that God creates. They know that sin entered the world uh, and that God promised a Messiah. And Paul's whole point is that Jesus is Messiah. Well, this works for a lot of people. A lot of people get saved within the church But there's also a fair number of people who completely reject Jesus and really want nothing to do with it and are pretty upset that Paul's coming into churches and saying this. Well, the message gets pretty popular, so much so that in many cities, it says that news spread throughout the whole city and the whole city is coming to listen to Paul's preaching. So he's preaching not only in the synagogues now, but out in the streets and people are getting saved like crazy. Not only Jews, but Gentiles. These are non-religious Jews. These are non-Jewish people, people like you and I. So we're seeing just a massive transformation of cities where Paul's preaching, people are getting saved But simultaneously, there's a group of people who make it their endeavor to seek out Paul's death. So as Paul's going from city to city, he goes there, preaches. People get mad, chase him out of town, trying to kill him. He goes to the next town. Literally, you have groups of people chasing him from town to town. Eventually, he gets to a town. He heals a crippled man from birth. Uh, The people see it. They celebrate. Man, that's awesome. You're healing people. But then the crowd who's trying to kill him catches up to him. And they essentially kill him. They stone him, they get a bunch of people together, they rally up a crowd and they say, no, this guy is not preaching truth, he's preaching heresy, and they uh, stone him to what they think is death, they drag his carcass out of the city, and so they think he's dead. His disciples, Paul's disciples, grab him, Um, he's not dead, bring him back, And, and what does Paul do? Does he say, man, I'm done, it's not worth it, I went from power, I went from authority, I went from clout to and I'm, I'm literally being chased from city to city to city where people are trying to kill me. Is that what he does? No. He says, okay, I want to I go back to these cities where people have literally said, I'm not going to eat or sleep until I kill this guy. He goes back to these cities to encourage the churches that he plants. So he goes back. Eventually, uh, he makes it back to kind of his home launch point, Antioch, where he was sent from the beginning. And, and he makes it back to the church. And, and at the church, they have uh, really kind of the, the first uh, debate amongst the church, which is absolutely ridiculous. And Paul's got to be furious. So, so you'll see this in Acts 15. He gets back to the church. And in Jerusalem, there's this big council. We, we're going to gather all the church leaders. And we're going to ask the question, can God save Gentiles. And Paul's got to be going, you're, you're kidding, right? I just literally almost died preaching the gospel, watching Gentiles get saved. And now you're asking if God can do something that he's already been doing. Like, come on. So he brings Peter with him. Peter um, validates his claim. Peter says, oh, no, I, I saw the vision from the Lord. Clearly Gentiles are getting saved. And finally the church goes, well, I guess God can do what he wants. Right. So it's a wild thought. Thank you. We are in. Gentiles are in. We're good to go. Awesome. So finally, Paul goes back up to Antioch and the church and him decide, okay, I want to go back to the churches that we planted. So this is kind of a second missionary journey. So as he's wanting to go back to these churches, something interesting happens. The Holy Spirit grabs Paul and says, you know, what? I'm not going to allow you to go back to these churches. Paul's going, man, I've got I've got a whole vision. I've, I've got the gospel to preach. I've got people to encourage. Like, why? Why would you stop me? It's really interesting. I think think there are times in our lives when when there are ministry opportunities that look so obvious in front of us and we want to do something. God's going, no, not here. I've got something for you somewhere else. So he gets a call. His call is to Macedonia. Poor guy, it's 400 miles away by foot. You do the math. three, Three miles per hour, eight hours a day. That's 100 days of walking. To where literally the Holy Spirit's going, nope, you can't minister. Nope, you can't minister. Nope, you can't share the gospel. I'm closing it off everywhere, and I have a special place for you. I want you to go to this city. So he goes up to Macedonia. He gets to the city um, of Philippi. And that's, this, that's where this church is planted. That's where uh, he meets the first people. Uh, you'll see that as the, the church in Philippi uh, began, it was one of the wildest, I think, uh, early member churches. You, you're going to see such a drastic difference between uh, some of the early members. So the first person that Paul meets at Philippi is a woman named Lydia. Lydia. Uh, She is a seller of purple. Most people will say that she's an upper, wealthy businesswoman, well-to-do, well-respected. He preaches the gospel to her. She gets saved. She preaches to her family. Her whole family gets saved. And now you want to talk about completely opposite person for member two of the church. So we've got wealthy, business class, family to uh, demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. All right? So... Well, Upper Purdue family, demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl. Paul finds her, casts the demon out. The family who owned her is furious because now there's no money to be made because she can't tell fortunes anymore through demonic sorcery. So they literally have Paul beaten, which was illegal, by the way, because he's a Roman citizen. They throw him in jail. Now we have opportunity for church member number three, the jailer. If you know the story, you know that Paul this time is with Silas. So Paul and Silas, they're in the jail. Massive earthquake happens. Uh, opportunity for all of, the, uh, all of the inmates to escape. The jailer says, well, I'm a dead man, so I might as well kill myself now. He's about to kill himself. He's literally he's got the sword to himself, and Paul says, wait, we're right here. And the guy says, but you've you got to imagine this conversation. The jailer's going, I just flogged you yesterday. Why aren't you escaping? Why aren't you trying to kill me? And Paul says, I've got a message for you, a message of life. And so you've got really this beautiful picture where uh, the jailer is now literally cleaning the wounds off of Paul that he inflicted on him himself. So you've got really um, a pretty wild mix in the early church here of business families, slaves, um, uh, jail people. I mean, just a real wild mix here. What we do know from this church is that Paul loves this church. Beyond that, we know that this church has been faithful to Paul. Um, At this point when he's writing, uh, he'd actually uh, gone and visited this church at least one more time, probably more than that. He's uh, actually in prison at this point in Rome. He's writing a letter to them because one of the church members from this church actually took the time to go to Rome to visit him. His name is Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus goes and visits Paul, while he's in prison and really brings him money uh, to encourage him um, as a prisoner. He still had some needs, probably more under house arrest at this point. Um, but more than just that, came to say, Paul, we're with you. You know, we haven't abandoned you. We want to encourage you. Um, we know that you have a lot of wisdom for our church. You're, you're kind of the grandfather for our church here. And I mean, we love you. And, and you, you can tell by some of the words that we get in in Philippians that uh, Epaphroditus kind of gives them an update on what's going on. You know, here's, here's the church. Here's some things that are going really well. You know, he also says, you know, there's there's a little bit of strife in the church to which uh, Pastor Rich alluded to uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, about two women and, and some sort of confrontation. And, and I mean, you got to imagine that there has to be confrontation. You've got like upper wealthy business people and slaves like I don't know, like are we going to have gold covered? Communion cups, or are we going to, you know, help out slaves? And you know, you got to imagine there's something. But I I don't think that the heart of Philippians really is to address a conflict. Most people will say that's probably not the heart of it. He touches on it, but really, what Paul's after here is, as as a father figure, to to write to this church, a to thank them to say, man, you guys have stuck with me. But then, but then beyond that, simply simply not just you're, you're sticking with me, but to say. This is what spiritual maturity looks like, because there is a certain level at which, yes, they were saved and they're they're moving along. And Paul wants to say, okay, now now let's let's go for the next step. Right. Let's let's continue on in spiritual maturity. Let's grow as adults in Christ. And ultimately, he lays down the bomb. He says, you need to live like Christ. He says, if you want unity here, you got to lay down your preference. you got to lay down your desires for that of other people. you got to live with less so that other people can live. And he lays it out pretty thick on them. You want joy, he says. He says, you want true happiness? Consider others better than yourself. He says, you've got your opinion, but there's going to be a lot of people who've got different opinions than you. Consider their opinion more valid than yours. Sacrifice for the needs of those around you. Be like Christ who was in the form of God but didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself to that of a servant. So he lays out Christ as really the ultimate example here. And um, this is such a drastically different message than our culture tells us. You know, I... I can't talk long enough about how different. I mean our culture, what do we what do we celebrate in our culture? Right? We celebrate success. We celebrate self-made. Right? I mean, who who do we love in this culture? Who do we read about? What is every magazine about? Is every magazine about the person who's who's giving stuff away and putting others first? Like no, that is not the, like, we want to know, okay, what, what's Cristiano Ronaldo doing? What's his hair looking like? And what's Kim Kardashian wearing? And, and who's the Gordon Geckos of the world? And who's the athlete who's, who's got the mouth and got the skills to back it up? Like, that's who we want to know. And Paul's saying, you want to find life? Give it away. You, you want to find true happiness? Put other people before you. Our culture is so opposite from that. Like like we, we have this kind of this weird picture. Not weird. I mean, this is just the picture that our culture says uh, happiness looks like. So um, don't watch a lot of TV, but I've been watching the NBA finals the last, I don't know, they finished. But uh, kind of picking up on what culture is saying happiness is. And And I recognize and realize that. The audience is probably men like me. So, so this is what happiness looks like. According to our culture, it's, it's a bunch of, you know, mid to late 30 year olds playing volleyball on some beach down in Mexico, drinking Coronas, you know, living for now, right? Nicki Minaj living for now. Life is good on the beach. Well, what that picture doesn't show us is a, where's the kids? Like you ever notice that there's a bunch of 30, 35 year olds, 40 year olds playing volleyball somewhere and there's never any kids. Like, last time I played, like, granted, I was the oldest one. No one else had kids, but you know my wife's at home. we got a kid who probably pooped her pants. Another one who's screaming. My wife's going, it's 5.30. Where are you, Daddy? Right? And then the other part of that that we don't see is what happens when the game's over? Right? And you're driving back home to mom and dad's house where you still live, and the moment is over, you don't see that picture anymore. But we're going live for now. It's all about now. And Paul's going, No live for others consider others better than you sacrifice so we so we got to stop here and say well well, what does this look like in our home because i can sit here and for 25 minutes build out this case okay paul's saying and look at paul and look at jesus but what what does sacrifice look like in your home Literally, what are we giving up? Because if we are to be like Christ who, who took on the form of a servant, what does sacrifice look like in our homes? See, I have a fear, and honestly, it's a fear because it's so prevalent in my life. I have a fear that I can live every day, day in and day out, and really not sacrifice much. Right? Because honestly, I enjoy church. Like, this is not a sacrifice for me. Like, I love this. You know, and some of us, okay, you go to church, maybe that's a sacrifice. Maybe your Tuesday night community group's a sacrifice. Maybe that 8 percent's a sacrifice. Maybe helping out at the barbecue twice a year is a sacrifice. But honestly, what are we giving up? We've got to ask ourselves, what, what am I sacrificing? I mean, it, it's got to be more than simply just these simple things that we don't ever really feel. And, and the interesting thing here. That, that Paul says, and really the, kind of the question that I, I have to ask is, you know, is, is it really worth living a life of humility? You know, does, that, does that honestly bring true life? You know, we say uh, th- this whole idea that if you want to find true life, then, then give and, and sacrifice for the needs of others. Well, well is that really true? And, and we know that it's not a formula. Because it's, if it was a formula, I wouldn't be up here telling it to you. Right. Like in the same way that I'm not up here going, you know, what's really good. And you guys should eat often. It's ice cream. Right. It's so good. You guys should do it. like you know that you eat it and it tastes good. So you do it. So I don't need to tell it to you. But why is it that every week, week in and week out, I need to say or Rich needs to say, hey, you, you want to be like Christ? Live in humility. Sacrifice. It's kind of weird, huh? Because it's not a formula. Because what do we see? The reality is we see, uh, you want to know what uh, living for Christ looks like? It looks like probably ending up like Paul in prison, maybe dead. So what did sacrifice look like for Christ? The best life possible? Yeah, on a cross? I don't know if that's best life possible. I, I don't know if we'd celebrate that in culture and say, that's what I want. Right? So, so why is it that Paul can say here, if you want to find life, give it away Why does that not seem consistent with our experience? It's an interesting question. So so we got to get to the bigger million-dollar question, which will actually get us to our text today, if you're wondering why in the world haven't you hit our text, um, is this, why is a life humbly sacrificing for the needs of others? Why is it actually worth it? Because I see a lot of people not sacrificing, and honestly their life looks pretty good to me. Honestly, most of us probably want a lot of lives that we see who are not sacrificing for anyone. So, why is it worth it? And I'll start out and I'll say, if this is all that there is, if life ends at death, it's not worth it. Right? Get it all now. Live for now. I mean, that's the truth. If this is it, why would you sacrifice anything for anyone? I mean, you got. 85 90 years maybe soak it all in take it all now get it all for yourself get it while you can if this is it live it up but our text says something differently verse 9 we're going to read this therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. See, the story continues, though. Jesus here in, in 9 is seen as lifted up. He defeats death. He is highly exalted. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. We're not talking universalists here. We're talking everyone will confess. God, you are Lord Death is defeated. Life moves on. Now, now, what does this have to do with sacrifice? Why is it that when, when Jesus himself puts himself to that of a servant, conquers death, what does he do with that? You're going to look at the end of 11 here, and you're going to see this. To the glory of the Father. So we've got, we've got this idea that we are supposed to sacrificially live in humility... And you've got the example of Christ, and what does Christ do? When he is exalted, when he's highly lifted up because of what he did, namely took on humanity, took on our death, what does he do with the glory? He gives it back to the Father. And he says, God, his point for us is, God, I serve because God the Father served me. See, I think we have a hard time believing this, though. I I think ultimately you and I have a hard time believing that God would actually save me. I really think that's true. I think it's hard for us to to give glory back to the Father and to serve and to be like Him because I think we have a hard time grasping that He would actually do that for us. As we close and kind of wrap things up here, I I kind of want to just put a picture in our mind that that helps us to understand how God has rescued us because every single week... My hope and my prayer is that as the gospel is preached, that it would be this, that we need to be rescued, that we serve and we give and we sacrifice because God served and gave and sacrificed for us. But see, honestly, I don't think we believe that most of the time. I think our picture is something like this. I think most of us would probably ask a question like this. You know, um, would I sacrifice my life for a homeless man on the corner? You know, probably a lot of us would say, yeah, probably not. Right? And, then, and then you can take that one step further and you can say, would I, would I give my life uh, to uh, save a homeless man on the corner who's literally throwing rocks at my car? Probably not. Right? And now you take it one step further and say, would I give my life to someone who's, who's punching me in the face, who's spitting at me, Who's putting a crown of thorns on my head and who's nailing me to a cross? Most of us? Probably not. And I think that's how we as humans would ask the question. Because I think that's how we see ourselves. But I think God would see it that way, but also he would see it a little bit differently. I think God would ask the question, Who would sacrifice your life to save my lost child? I think that's the question God's asking. And so when we realize we are that lost child whom God gave everything to win us back, to pay for our sin, then don't we in turn want to bring glory back to the Father by doing likewise? I mean, honestly, I I think that we fail to live as if others are better than us because I think we feel like we're better than God. I really think that. I think that until we can find ourselves in a posture where we recognize, God, You have rescued me. When you want to talk about coming from up here to down here? That's that's what Christ did for us. And when we can grasp that, when we can understand the depth of our depravity and what Christ did for me, then I think in turn, don't we kind of have to live life putting others before us? I and mean, I think if you don't, I think you're just showing with your life you don't understand the gospel. I think this is why when Paul continues on here in next a couple weeks we're going to get to, and this is what your life ought to look like in response to a God who gave his life to serve us. So as we close here, we're going to go to communion every week we do. It's a time where we say, God, you gave your life for me. You sacrificed everything for me. And I ought to be someone who recognizes that and in turn live my life and sacrifice for other people. Whether that's time, whether that's position, whether that's money, whatever it may be, Lord, I want to sacrifice because you sacrificed for me. And I hope that's your posture as you go to the table. All right, examine yourself. The gospel says, examine your heart. Do it in a worthy manner. Like If there's unrepentant sin in your life, don't go to the table. Meet with the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. Then go to the table. Go next week. It's also a time for giving. We've got offering boxes here. This is a time for you to say, okay, God, you've given your life to me. I want to sacrifice and give back to you because I know that you're the author, sustainer, and giver of everything. So you guys join me in that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are called to be like you who gave up everything, who took on the form of a servant for my sin, And God, I I ask that my life would be a reflection of my understanding of that. God, I ask that daily I would have a posture that says, I know that the king of the world took on humanity to save me. And in turn, I want to glorify him by doing that to others. I want to sacrifice. I want to love other people well. I want to value other people more than I value myself. God, I pray that we'd be a people who are marked by that in humility, considering others better than ourselves. And Lord, ultimately, as we look at this passage, as we look at the fact that you were raised, that you conquered death, that life is beyond just an example here, but it's ultimately bringing glory to you, we praise your name for that. We praise your name that you are good and you gave to us. And Lord, we confess that you are Lord. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.